All right, well, welcome um, again to Hope Presbyterian Church. My name is Wayne Logan. I work for Campus Outreach at the University of Kentucky. Uh, my wife, Morgan, and I and our girls have been here for as long as the church has been here or as long as they've been alive. So we are very thankful to be a part of this community. Um, as a short sidebar, um, so when I was growing up, I grew up in the church. Um, my grandfather's a pastor, so I got elected to do all the jobs no one else knew how to do. So I was the audio and video guy for years in our church, and I'd sit in this little chair in the back and move the camera and no one ever thanked you. So if you see someone like Jim or Jacob or all the other folks that sit back here in this corner, um, thank them because this doesn't happen without them. So thank you, Jim. Thank you, you guys. That's right. Um, so it takes a whole lot more than you guys know to make this happen every Sunday. So thank you folks to do all the hard work um, so that Marshall can come do the easy work. Um, Today, we're going to be continuing in Genesis, so if you have your Bibles or it's on the screen, we're going to be in Genesis 18, 16 through 33, and so I'm going to read our verses for us, I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went down toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke and said to him, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The word of the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Um, We thank you that, as we're going to see in this passage, Lord, you long to hear from us. Father, you have spoken to us um, by your word, by the prophets, by your law, by your son. And um, Father, we can hear you and know you through it. Lord, we thank you that you long to be with us, that you have um, 
done so many magnificent things in order to be with your people. I pray that today we would be reminded of that, that you would encourage us by who you are and what you say about us. Um, I pray that we would be convicted where we need to be and that we would long to know you more um, because we get a glimpse of you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so as you can tell, this is a very interesting passage, right? So we just read 11, 12 verses about this man, Abraham, basically begging God, hey, will you forgive you know, these people if there's this many? And he says, yes. He says, okay, what about if there's this many? And he says, yes, again, and just continues, right? And so the, the main characters today are really clear, right? There's Abraham, and then there's the Lord, who's in the form of man in our context today. And of course, there's plenty to be learned about Abraham, there's plenty to learn about us from this passage. But instead today, I really want to focus in on what does this passage tell us about our God? And I want us to consider instead what he tells us God is like and how that same God relates to us. And so I'm sure many of you have heard this. There's a famous quote by A.W. Tozer, and he says, The most important thing about a man is what comes to mind when he thinks about God. Which is a great quote. It's very true, right? Everything about that. Um, reveals our heart. What we think about God, especially in the first moments of thinking about Him, reflects our heart, and that's what's really important about us. But C.S. Lewis actually goes on to say that, in fact, what's more important is what God thinks about us. All right? So not just what we think about God, but what God thinks about us is, in fact, the most important thing. And so this morning, we're going to see what does this God actually think about you and I? And how in turn does it make us think about Him? And so we're going to see three things. We're going to see, one, that God desires to be in relationship with us. Two, that He invites our honesty within that relationship. And that finally, He demands justice. Okay? So let's start with point number one. God desires relationship. And so the first thing we notice here is that God is speaking to a man. And He's speaking as a man. Right? That only happens a few other times in God's Word, so it must be important if God condescends to human form in order to speak with His creation. And so Marshall preached last week the first half of this chapter, and what he said was that when God appears here, God comes down in the form of man, and there's two other men with Him. And so theologians disagree. Some people think it's other um, angels. Some think it's maybe God and Trinity. Right? We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us that information. But what we do know is that when these men come down, that then Abraham makes a meal with him, and he and Sarah share a meal with these three men. And so whenever they leave, Abraham, I'm sorry, not Abraham, God and these two other men are having this conversation that we get to see here in the first part of our uh, verses. And so as he speaks, as he's talking to them, he leans over and he says this. He says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so this man, God, is speaking to the other man here, probably angels, and he asks this question, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Now think about that for a second. How many times... Have you thought, man, I just wish God would just tell me. Would he just let me know what he's about to do? Would he just let me in on his plan? Many of you have probably begged God, asked him, God, would you just give me something? Give me some direction, um, some hope to cling on to. 
And how often does he feel like he does that? Probably rarely, right? Sometimes God does. Sometimes he's really gracious and he'll give us something to hang on to. But here, God's not only willing, but desires to include Abraham in this discussion. He takes off his sovereign lenses and hands them to Abraham and gives him a picture of what is about to come. What is his will? What's his plan? What's he going to do? And it's not only as a prophecy. It's not just as a promise, but it's a conversation between friends. Not a declaration between a master to his servant, but an invitation into conversation with a friend. Now, there's much to say about these verses, but what I want to focus on is this, that God desired a relationship with his servant, Abraham, as a friend. And God's movement is always towards his people and his creation. He doesn't ever move away from them. A city always draws near. And so he takes the first step toward Abraham here. He draws him into deeper relationship with him by first stepping towards Abraham, inviting him in. God is the one who starts this relationship, not Abraham. He says, should I hide from him what I'm going to do, seeing as I have chosen him? So God had chosen Abraham. He equipped him for his calling to bless the nations in spite of the brokenness and the continual failures we've read about in the last 18 chapters. Right, Time and again, we see that God's people, including Abraham, fall short. Over and over, they don't seek to do what is good. Instead, they trust their own wisdom or they go after the longings of their flesh. And so, here we see again, God moving towards a broken image bearer. Abraham didn't seek out God. He didn't ask him what his plan was. He didn't say, hey, let's compare some notes, get on the same page, decide what we're going to do here. No, no, no. God condescends to Abraham. He takes on Abraham's form, uses Abraham's language. He reveals his own will to Abraham. And in doing so, he invites him to share his thoughts. He gives his own opinion in the matter. And if you think about it, isn't this how God acted towards all of us? Everyone who calls Him Lord, we didn't wake up one day and just say, you know, I'm going to go talk to God. I'm going to march into His office, give Him my opinion, tell Him my two cents of what I think He should do here on the earth. That's not happening at all. Instead, we seek and wander around seeking for something, anything to fulfill us. And God reveals Himself to us. He draws us near in His love. He invites us to come know Him. We're much more like the people at Babel. We read in uh, Genesis 11 that the people in Babel built a tower, right? They decided, I'm going to get to God. I'm going to make my own name. I want to be like God. So I'm going to build a tower to reach to His presence. We're going to get to the heavens by our labor, our hard work, our wisdom. But what it says is that instead of going up to heaven, God had to come down to those people. And that's what it's like for us. Not only could we not get to God, we couldn't even find God. Right? He exists so far outside of our realm of possibility that unless He does something amazing, we have no chance of even knowing Him. And again, that's what He has done. That's what He's offered to all of us. And so God comes down, meets us on our turf, which He, of course, made, and interacts with us like a friend and a father. He asks us questions. He pursues us. He draws us to Himself in love. And just as He does with Abraham... His drawing near to us teaches us how to draw near to Him. And what God does with Abraham by revealing His intentions is invite him to plead on the people of Sodom's behalf. He invites Abraham to be honest with God, to bring his emotions and questions to the table in honest concern and inquiries. 
And Abraham, to his credit, does just that. And so that takes us to point two. So verses 22 through 23 capture this conversation between Abraham and God, where God invites Abraham to bring his honest thoughts, his honest fears, his honest doubts to God himself. And so while the other two men or angels begin walking down towards Sodom to go see if they have done altogether what he has seen and heard, God stands still. Right? It says the two men take off, but God stays in place. His standing still invites Abraham to also join him in conversation. And so Abraham, to his credit, begins questioning God. He asks him about his character, his intentions. He challenges God with what he knows to be true about God. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you then sweep away the place and not spare for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And you can hear the deep questions of Abraham's heart here, right? God, would you really destroy the righteous because they dwell among the wicked? Would you really be that unjust? Won't you spare the wicked for the righteous' sake instead? God, that's not fair. Far be it from you to be unjust. You are the judge of all the earth. We know that you are just, but God, I don't see it yet. And I'm sure many of you have felt that. That's a very real um, feeling. It's a raw emotion that should not just be neglected. But think about this. Can you imagine saying those things to God? Maybe you can. But can you imagine doing that face to face? For most of my life, at least, I know that I couldn't. I grew up in a context where any questioning of God, any doubts about Him were written off as sin at best and evidence that you didn't actually know God or you weren't a Christian at all at worst. And so I definitely felt some of those things, but no part of me felt safe to bring those things to the Lord or to any of my trusted friends. And so in the depths of my heart, yes, I, I felt those things, but honestly, even then, I would try to, to just not think about it, right? Like, man, God can read my mind. I know He knows what's going on. So if I just don't think about it, maybe right now he's not paying attention to my mind and he won't know that I thought those things about him, right? That was a justification in my mind. I was so concerned that my whole life was like the Truman Show and everyone else in the world could see everything in my heart, including God. And if I ever had a moment of weakness, then he was going to come judge me. And so that's how I grew up. That's what I thought my relationship with God needed to look like. And I bet for many of you, that story sounds pretty similar, Many of us have been taught that we have put on a brave face in the midst of trials. Pretend that we're good because, you know, God works all things for those who love Him, which is true, but is not always helpful in the moment, right? And so therefore, we just need to trust that He will work it out, and we won't have to feel that hurt at all. Maybe if we just believe all these things, we can ignore the feelings, and then by the time we actually understand, it won't hurt anymore. The problem is that just doesn't work. And that's also not what God wants us to do. He doesn't ask us to hide what we feel. He doesn't ask us to bury those things until a later time when it makes sense. He wants us to experience them in the moment. And so, if it makes you feel any better, the, uh, the world around us gets that, right? That's the, that's the lie they're selling us. Uh, one of my favorite movies right now that my daughter watches all the time is Frozen 2. And so, uh, if you don't know, there's this little um, character named Olaf, and Olaf is a uh, snowman who was created with Elsa's magic ice and snow, and Olaf is starting to grow up in Frozen 2. And so he sings this song, you know, This wall makes sense when I am older, like why I'm in this dark enchanted woods. 
I know in a couple years, these will see my childish fears. And so I know this isn't bad, it's good. And so the whole problem of Olaf in the second movie is that he is growing up and he doesn't know what to do with all these things, right? So he's asking these other kids these crazy questions like, how do you deal with the existential crisis of, you know, whatever? And uh, they're all just like, what? Like one of them's picking their nose and he's like, oh, that makes so much sense. And so this whole story of Olaf in the movie is that he's trying to figure out how do I grow up when I'm starting to understand things aren't always what they seem, right? Everything's not all good. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. Life is hard and he's angry, and he's sad, and he doesn't know what to do with that. And I think we live in a very similar um, stage of life. In our culture, it's not always okay to feel those things, right? It's not, it's not Christian-like sometimes to have doubts and questions about our God. And what I would love for you to see from our passage today is that's just not the case. Because um, what we see is that what God has invited Abraham into is to bring his honest, real emotions and thoughts and doubts and concerns to God. Right? He doesn't have to hide them. He doesn't bury them. He doesn't take them to the culture and ask everyone else around what he should do. Instead, he brings them straight to God. And so things don't always make sense. They don't always make sense in the moment when we need them to, and sometimes they don't ever make sense. Right? There's so many things I can think of in my mind where I think, man, maybe one day this really hard thing will make sense and I'll be more on board with God. I'll understand why I did it. And the reality is, some of those things will never be answered on this side of heaven. And that's really hard. And I wish I could say that's not true, but it is. And so Olaf's mantra might work for some cases, but it's just not going to work for most of real life. And so we need a better answer. And God's Word gives us that better answer. And that answer is honesty. We can come to God with all of our hurts, fears, doubts, and He can handle them. And some of you... Sad we know that this is the case, because you've been through some really hard things. You see, I tried to live life like Olaf and believe all those thoughts about the world until my life got really hard. Right? When things started going wrong, when things didn't work out the way they were supposed to, when things started being unfair or unjust or wicked or didn't make sense to me, I started being woken up to the reality of, man, this, this ain't going to work. But thankfully, in those seasons, some trusted men and women, friends and pastors, showed me that, man, God's Word is full of people lamenting over the brokenness of this world. Their own lives, their own sin. God can take all of those things. And God never strikes them down for raising those concerns or doubts or questions. Instead, He listens and He loves. It's because of God's character and His love that He pursues us by allowing us to cry out to Him. When we see or experience injustice, brokenness, or wicked, that's when our relationship with God becomes the closest. And here, we're privy to a conversation between God and his chosen friend Abraham. And Abraham just lets him hear it. Aren't you the judge? Don't you know justice and righteousness more than anyone else, God? How is this fair? Surely you wouldn't destroy those who are righteous because of the rest of these wicked folks. Notice here, God doesn't stop Abraham. He doesn't say, hey, okay, you know who I am, Abraham. Like, cool off a little bit, right? He listens to his appeal. He values his thoughts and his questions. He doesn't push them aside. He doesn't justify them. He doesn't defend his character. He just listens. And then, to beat it all, he actually agrees with Abraham's request. He says, sure, if there's 50 righteous people in that town, I'll spare the whole city for their sake, right? So the thousands of wicked, I'll actually spare them because of the goodness and the righteousness of a few. 
And this brings us to the final truth, that God does indeed demand and bring justice. Okay, And so let's see what he does. And so Abraham gets bolder and bolder in his request. Right? We see in our section that he starts with 50 and he ends at 10. Right? So over and over again, God is listening and appeasing Abraham. Every time he asks for more and more um, grace, God is agreeing to it. He doesn't say, no, no, okay, Abraham, that's enough. Like, come on. Ten, really? Like, ten people out of thousands? That's, that's your line? Instead, he says, yeah, I'll do it. Even for just ten righteous folks, my grace will be given to those thousands. And so Abraham is emboldened over and over, more and more, to ask for more grace for the city. And every single time, God agrees. So where does this come from? How does Abraham dare to beg and plead for this much grace over and over again when God's already given so much? I think of another scenario, another man, not a snowman, said the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is this child. The only person in the whole kingdom, think about that. Not one of us is crazy enough to go over to um, the king that was coordinated yesterday and say, you know, 3 a.m., hey, can, can you give me some water? Like, can you just, like, wake up, get out of your bed, walk across the castle, give me a drink of water, and bring it back here, and, like, tuck me in bed? Right? None of us are crazy enough to do that. We wouldn't even get close to the castle, let alone get into the bedchamber of the king to ask him to get us water. But a child can, right? His child, in particular. He has the authority, the audacity to come to his king and demand a cup of water from him. And Abraham knew. He knew whose child he was. The reason he could go to God was because he knew that God cared enough for him to hear his request because he had already proven time and time again what he was like and what he thought about Abraham. Remember, God knows everything about Abraham. We've just seen it on display for the last six chapters. Over and over again, God blesses Abraham, Abraham messes up. God blesses Abraham, Abraham messes up. And yet... He still wants to be in relationship with him. Think about how many times your friends have messed up and how hard it is to go back to them. Right? We are so much more quick to move on, to to judge, to give up on folks. And Abraham, he would have been pretty quick on that list for me. Right? Like, you give up your wife twice to Pharaoh, save your own hide, you're probably gone. We're not going to be tied after that. But God doesn't blow off Abraham that way. See, Abraham was afraid, at least he says he is, but he's not too afraid to wake up God and ask for his water. And guess what? God says yes. He gets him his glass of water, hypothetically, right, five times. God's willing to move his line so many times for two reasons. Number one, he wants to bless Abraham. And number two, because he knows he's demanding justice. And Abraham is right to challenge God. He knows his character. He knows what he says to be true. And so he pushes in on what God says about himself. But God reveals what Abraham knows to be true from the beginning. He is the judge of all. And he will be just. And so those who are righteous are going to be spared. And if there are even ten of them, the whole city is going to be spared. But as we'll see next week, there's not ten men to be found. See, the problem with Sodom is not that the whole city isn't righteous. It's that not anyone in the city is righteous. Right? There are none at all. So the question for Abraham shouldn't have just stopped at 10. He should have went all the way to 1. The unfortunate thing for Abraham is there wasn't one. 
And so what God does is what he promises. He judges the wickedness of the people, and those who prove to be wicked are going to receive his wrath. And we often forget that God's love and his wrath are connected. He is just because he is love. Think about this. What kind of a father would he be if he idly sat by and watched his children be abused, crushed, or even killed and not bring forth justice on the evildoer? That's what's happening in Sodom. And it's what happens again and again when nations oppose his people. It's what happens in his own nation in Israel. Whenever the people turn to other gods over and over again, they receive their just punishment from God in order to restore them back to right relationship with him. And so they aren't given a pass. In fact, they're held more accountable because they know God more personally than any other nation. And we can get on board with this, right? We know, we all agree, that murderers, rapists, abusers should all get their just punishment. The problem is, when this starts getting closer to home, we change our tune. right? We're all for justice for those people. We're all for justice for the sodomites who doing all these things we just read, right? There are wicked people that are doing all sorts of things that deserve punishment. But when it gets to us, what we really want is for God to overlook our justice, right? We want Him to give us grace and mercy, but to give justice to the rest of the world. And sure, we probably haven't killed anyone. We haven't tried to abuse our neighbor. We haven't hated someone, or, or I'm sorry, we haven't um, hated someone but we have, haven't we? Think about our own hearts, right? We haven't killed somebody. We haven't maybe had an affair, but in our hearts we sure have, right? God says that to hate someone in your heart is the same as murder. Um, another pastor said that's embryonic murder. The motivations and intentions of our heart are just as vile and wicked as those people that we see about in Sodom. And so for us, we stand just as guilty. We too are condemned by God. Now, if Marshall stood before God and pled for Hope Presbyterian, we would be crushed too, because there's not even ten righteous men and women in our midst either. There's not even one. All of us fall short of God's law, and our only hope is that God would provide another to bear the weight of that justice. And the best news of history, He has. You see, Jesus Christ was righteous. He was worthy. He was able to stand before God and be counted as clean and guiltless. And instead of riding off in the sunset as the poster boy of perfection, he chose to take on himself the guilt and vileness of his people and die for the justice they deserved. And so in the most unjust moment of all of human history, the just one, Jesus, died for the unjust. Jesus has proclaimed that all who take him at his word who trusts that He is the Son of God, one with the Father, who spoke the world into existence, that He has come to earth to die on behalf of the wretched sinners so that they could have life. And not only did He die, but He resurrected from the dead to defeat death and hell and is now sitting at God's right hand, making intercession for you and I and all those who would trust Him. So that every single time Satan enters His presence to bring another case against God's elect that has... Satan would say over and over again, but he's done this, he's done this, she's done so-and-so, she's done this thing. Jesus would look into the eyes and say, you're right, Satan. He did do that, but I've already paid for that. There is no double jeopardy in God's court. God has paid the just punishment of the sins of his elect. And so all those 
who have trusted in him that have said, you're right, Satan, I have no shot. You have me dead to rights. My only hope in life and death is that I belong to Jesus, that his name is now in place of my name. And so when God sees me, he sees me as his son. That's our hope. So yes, Satan, you're right. I don't deserve any of this. I do deserve wrath and hell and judgment. But because of Jesus, instead I get what he deserves. And what he deserves is perfection, life. And so that's what I have for you today. That even though we are like the men and women of Sodom, that we deserve nothing but wrath and justice from God, instead what we receive is grace and mercy. And so what matters most about you is what God thinks about you. And what God thinks about you is that you're worth it. He looks upon you and declares, that one's mine. And so let's pray and thank Him for that today. Dear Father, I thank You that as we've seen in each of our readings today and our confessions of sin and our prayers, Lord, everything that we have confessed this morning, that we are unrighteous, that through the sin of one man, Adam, our forefather, sin has entered the world. We all stand before you as guilty, uh, that we have trespassed against your law, that we deserve nothing but wrath and justice. And instead, where you have offered us grace instead. I praise you that, Father, you are who you say you are, that you invite us into a relationship with you, that you invite our honesty, that you can handle our doubts and fears, our shame, because, Lord, you have already paid for our sins, that anyone who would trust in you can be made right, and not just right, but righteous. I pray you do that for us today, that you would help us to know you more, that we would see your character and bless you for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.